I woke up one morning and I was a drug addict and an alcoholic and really a sex addict in the sense that I think all of those were things I reached out to, like any addiction. I don't recommend my life to anybody, <laughs> but it somehow worked out for me. I'm Eli Roth, and this is my Shudder original series, History of Horror Uncut. Each episode is a candid conversation with a master of the genre, drawn from raw and unfiltered interviews conducted for my AMC TV series, Eli Roth's History of Horror. These are deep dives into the dark power and wicked fun of frightening movies, the craft that goes into making them, and the ways that horror reflects the anxieties of our times. They're also probing, insightful, and often funny conversations that open up doors into the minds of horror's star creators. The terror begins right after this. Eli Ross' History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast. Download the app or visit Shudder.com to begin your seven-day free trial. Joel Schumacher was a man of many talents. He started out as a fashion designer, moved into screenwriting, then became an A-list director, making films as varied as Brat Pack soap opera St. Elmo's Fire, camp superhero movie Batman Forever, and the dark dramas Tigerland, 8mm, and the unforgettable Falling Down. One of Joel's favorite projects and most successful films was The Lost Boys, radical updating of the vampire myth for an 80s teen audience, The Lost Boys changed the landscape of horror and had an enormous impact on a generation of filmgoers and filmmakers. Joel sadly passed away in 2020. This interview was conducted in 2018 by History of Horror showrunner Kurt Zienga. So, Joel, what were your early experiences with horror films? I can't remember horror films, per se. I, there was a lot of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, Abbott and Costello meet Dracula, Abbott and Costello meet Dracula and Frankenstein. You know, there was a whole bunch of those, which when I was a boy, I would go. I grew up behind a movie theater, the Sunnyside Movie Theater before television. And so when we weren't getting into trouble on the street or in school or wherever, which was a lot of the time, we were in the movies. But I liked different movies than they did. Um, I liked dark. I liked noir much more. There's a fair amount of overlap between noir and horror. There is, but usually, I mean, the classic noirs, I would use Double Indemnity as the classic. They're really thrillers and crime stories in a way. But even in a poor neighborhood like I grew up in, there were huge movie palaces. And I grew up behind one because my mother and I lived on the ground floor of the building. And I could see the back door. We played baseball on that lot. But right there were the back doors of the Sunnyside Movie Palace. So, you know, I started working when I was nine. And if I had some money or one of us would sneak in and leave the door open a little, and then all of us would crawl in. 
And if we didn't get a, I would always raise to sit next to an adult, but they bust you sometimes. But what I started doing when I was a kid is I knew there were some movies that I wasn't supposed to see. So of course, that's all I wanted to see. And they went on at night. So when sort of the more family fair ended around five, they had these very long bathrooms. Well, I was a kid, it seemed very long. And I would get on the toilet seat with my shoes on and, you know, and wait there in case they looked in the, in, the, in the bathroom. And then I would try to slip out past the candy stand so I could watch dark movies. And um, I think Great Expectation changed my life when I was about seven. The David Lean directed. The great. Well, I didn't know there was a David Lean. I didn't know there was a Charles Dickens. I didn't know anything. My father died when I was four, and it opens with Pip in the graveyard, if you remember, as a young boy. And I guess it was the first visual image I ever saw that I could relate to. I'm sure because children are so self-centered that I thought, oh, they make movies about people like me. And then, of course, that great scene where, you know, I uh, can't think of the actor's name, that brilliant uh, British actor jumps out and scares the shit out of everybody, but, of course, becomes his great mentor. And then Pip saves his life towards the end. And I had great expectations, most definitely. And great expectations, I mean, there are indelible images, like the graveyard scene. But then also, you know, Martita Hunt is Mrs. Haversham. That set, and Gene Simmons, as a very young girl, is, is so ravishing, so seductive. And of course, she went on to have a phenomenal career. And it's a great story. I mean, Dickens wrote really great stories. I know you didn't come here to hear that. But I always liked darker material. Still do. I am not a romantic comedy guy. If I ask you to name one horror film that really made an impression on you, what would it be? I don't think I was in art school yet. But I remember walking down Third Avenue and the movie theater that was on Third, there was the Baronet and the Coronet that were right across from Bloomingdale's back entrance. And it said Alfred Hitchcock, Psycho. Well, I was an Alfred Hitchcock fan and I didn't know anything about the movie. I hadn't read anything about it. I don't think they advertised it on television. I didn't, I never watched television then. I mean, I grew up without television. There was no television. I never got addicted till <laughs> in my dotage. Um, but I just went in. And there was Janet Lee, who was a big movie star, and John Gavin, who was an up-and-comer. And, of course, I'd kind of grown up on Tony Perkins' movies. And, you know, the genius of the beginning is that you're in a whole other story, the bank robbery. So the shower scene, no one had talked to me about it. No one had seen it. And that was, that was at that moment, the scariest thing I'd ever seen. In fact, I'm sure like a lot of people, I wouldn't close the bathroom door when I was showering and sometimes not the shower curtain, which drove my young roommates insane. <laughs> um, that's what affected that. Because I'm not very, I'm pretty fearless. But of course, more has been written about that than so many other of his films. You had what most people would call a difficult childhood. Uh, did any of traumatic experiences make their way into your films in one way or another? 
You know, I don't remember my childhood as traumatic. My father died when I was four, but I can't really remember him. And he was just there one day and then not. And then my mother went out to work. We had no money. My mother went out to work six days a week and three nights a week. And, you know, I started delivering meat for the butcher and making some money. But I remember because my mother worked six days a week and three nights a week, total freedom and no parental control. So everybody would say, you have to be a very good boy for your mother because your mother's a saint. And when I was in my mother's living room, I was a good boy, but not outside. I was a terror. And I started drinking and smoking at an age that I won't tell you because you won't believe it. And fooling around, I was always curious sexually. I don't consider it trauma. And I think my mother's death when I was very young was, she was also there one day and then not. And I don't know if that was a trauma. I, I guess it must have been, but it doesn't feel that way because I was afraid that I didn't want people to feel sorry for me or ever pity me. So I think I, I just covered it over with a lot of arrogance, a lot of braggadocia, a lot of attitude. And also, it's very hard for any of you to imagine I had no brothers, I had no sisters, I had no family. There's no one coming. It's you. But I had become so self-dependent by riding my bike from the age of seven or eight over the 59th Street Bridge and getting, you know, what do you do if you get a flat tire? What do you do if, you, if it starts raining? What do you do? Predators come out of the woodwork. I'm sure they did for friends of mine too, but we never talked about those things. I'm glad I grew up very street savvy. Because I think of some of those incidents, which are chilling, and I think, what if I ever got in that car? You know, what if I ever let that man take photographs? I mean, like, what could have happened? But I didn't. I'd tell them to go fuck themselves, or I'll call a cop, <laughs> which was quite a shock. <laughs> so if there was trauma, it doesn't feel like that. I mean, I have had, uh, I mean, what I did to myself, that's the bad news because I got so addicted to alcohol and drugs at such a young age. And it got very serious in the 60s, but I just stopped intravenous drugs, January of 1970, and then I was in Hollywood. And then slowly it picked up again, but never the way it was in the 60s. What's The Lost Boys about? Lost Boys was about making a teenage vampire movie that I would like to see. It's a great three words, The Lost Boys. Of course, they're a very important part of Peter Pan. I think there was much more reference in it. The original script by uh, Janice Fisher and James Jeremias was the very G-rated kind of Goonies Go Vampire script, and it was charming. It was really charming. And I think it felt a little more Peter Pan-ish. I'm not a Peter Pan fan. I, I hated kids' movies when I was growing up. I hated them. I wanted to see dark, twisted movies. <laughs> and uh, still do. There's a big book that a gentleman in England, Paul Davis, just put out about the Lost Boys. It's like everything you want to know and too much information. But it's extremely well done. And I read in it that Dick Donner was thinking of making it a little older too. 
And I don't know at what point the great late Jeff Bohm came in, but the movie is really a result of what Jeff and I came up with. And also Bo Welsh, the fabulous production designer, and Susan Becker, who did the costumes, and B. Neal, who did uh, makeup, who's won about three or four Academy Awards, you know, went on to glory. And everyone so passionate that worked on it, which was unusual. And, you know, to get Diane Weist was my dream. And she said, yes. And Ed Herman and, you know, Bernard Hughes, who was so great as the grandfather. You know, those people had done great theater, but they said yes. And they, they threw themselves into it. And I was reading, Edward Herman said, I jumped at it because no one would ever cast me like that. You know, he always played Roosevelt and, you know, he has a lot of gravitas and a wonderful actor. So it was interesting when you see the film through other people's point of view. Did you do much research into vampires and vampirism? Before I did Lost Boys, of course, I read Bram Stoker's Dracula. I think what it is at the time it was written, I think it is a way, you know, they always had to do symbolism because sex was so repressed and the churches were so, you know, dynamic and, you know, everyone was a sinner and there was so much sin. I think the original Dracula is the veiled story that it's kind of the first oral sex because what you have is a beautiful young woman in bed and then an extremely well-dressed count appears at her window. She succumbs, opens the door, and lets him in. And then, systematically, he sucks the blood from her over a period of nights, and then she is his. And I think that was Bram Stoker doing oral sex. Just my interpretation. But his is very sexual. I mean, Vlad the Impaler drank people's blood and put their heads on stakes. Not Count Dracula. They were always beautiful women, and they dressed beautifully. It's the most romantic branch of horror. Well, vampires are the only ones that you can really make sexy and beautiful. You know, the other monsters don't pretty much fall into that category. You have a very visual aesthetic. So when you took on The Lost Boys, how did you want it to look? How are you going to differentiate it from other vampire movies? I was ready to turn down the film. And when I called my agent and Dick Donner and Mark Canton, who was president of Warner Brothers, they were all at lunch by the time I had read the script on a Monday morning. Because I read it twice, to be fair. And I left word for all of them. And then I went out running. And I knew they had those big acrylic caves on, at Warner Brothers. And there was a cave, of course, in the G-rated version of Lost Boys that I read. And I thought, see, Warner Brothers just wants to use that cave again. And I thought, well, if it's Santa Cruz, then why couldn't, you know, a kind of Death in Venice hotel have fallen into the fault when the famous San Francisco earthquake happened, which was devastating. So why couldn't there be Baroque statues and things? And, and then I said, you know, I was thinking, why can't there be teenagers? Why can't there be a girl? Star was sort of a magical boy that kind of flew and served a fantasy. And I thought, there's no, there's no sex. 
<laughs> and why can't they be teenagers? And why can't they dress like a, a British rock band? And why? And then by the time everybody called back, I said, I have an idea. And I went in to see Mark and Dick. And I, I just started saying, and why can't we do this? And why can't we do that? And why can't we have stripped down motorcycles? And, and Mark Cannon was great, a great cheerleader. And I just said, do it, do it, just do it, do it. And, um, and so we did. And his bosses were not pleased very much at first until we had our first research screening. <laughs> then they were very happy. They did not believe that comedy and horror could work together. And so they kept sending Mark or Bruce Berman, who was a vice president, up to see me in Santa Cruz and saying, oh, Bob and Terry, who are the greatest bosses in the world, and I really loved them. And they were very patient and very supportive to me for years and years. And, you know, they'd say, look, Bob and Terry are very worried. Joel, are you making a horror movie or a comedy? And I'd say, tell them yes. And then, you know, after the third time, they said, that's not going to work. So I said, well, tell them to pray. I mean, either we should stop the movie or I believe in this movie and I believe in our dailies. So unless they want to fire me, I'm going to keep going until you pull the plug. So the film is also unusual because of where it's set in a California beach town. Once I saw Santa Carla, which is what the original script said, then you saw the whole movie. I saw the whole movie because... There were so many runaways. There were so many drug problems. It's exactly where you would go if you were a teenage vampire. It also was the murder capital of the world at that time. There were more per capita, which that's why I had to change the name to Santa Carla, because Santa Cruz, they were wonderful to us, but they wouldn't let us, let us use the boardwalk, which is for families, essentially if we didn't change the name of the town, because on the back of the billboard in the beginning, it says murder capital of the world. And it was, believe it or not. There was a murder outside our hotel, a drug murder, while we were just location scouting. But once I saw that world, it was perfect. I mean, I said to everybody at Warner Brothers, let's, let's not make excuses for this movie. It's a teenage vampire film. Can we make the best one that's ever been made? We can die trying. And that was, that was all it was. And it was how to invent, you know, how to get around the coffins. Well, we'll make that part of the cave a coffin in itself. And then they can hang upside down. And then why don't we do bat claw feet? And, you know, that stuff. We were trying. And it's sad because, you know, Catherine Bigelow made a great vampire movie that summer, Near Dark. And I think that Lost Boys eclipsed it. And I, I do hope people see that film because she's one of my favorite directors. So tell me a little bit more about the uh, set direction, the cave, the sunken hotel. Are you particularly proud of that? Well, I'm particularly proud of Bo Welsh because, you know, there were a lot of unknowns in the film. There was no big star to hang it on. And even though it was not an expensive film, at the last second, they wanted to cut one to two million dollars out of the budget. And it's, it's kind of the meeting you have where you've got to cut this out or we're not going to green light it. So the cave was going to be a full set that Bo had designed. But that was one way of taking a lot of money out of it, because that was one of the most important sets, that and Grandpa's house. And... What Bo did that was brilliant is he did pieces that were going to be in the cave on rollers so we could move them 
anywhere we wanted, which made it very easy to shoot because we could move them in one second. And also he was able to build the fountain this way because we could move the walls around. And it was a brilliant compromise that saved a lot of money, but I think it was actually better. It's one of those compromises where you realize this is a gift, but that was all both. I read some wildly different critical interpretations of The Lost Boys. Uh, some of the interpretations of my films have absolutely nothing to do with what I was intending to make. But it's nice that they're treated so intellectually. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, there's a lot of psychology. Or in the case of Lost Boys in Paris, the, the top film critic at Figaro thought that Ed Herman as the head vampire was like, I was making a statement about the corporate world feeding off the poor and homeless. That wasn't my desire. That wasn't my plan. But I think your politics and your views do come in subconsciously, but I didn't see it that way at all. And I still don't see it that all. I think that's in the eye of the beholder. I think in the interpretations that people made are within them. I think a lot of has it has to do with me being gay, too. You know, Tigerland, which probably got all across the board the best reviews of any movie that I've done, you know, it's always referred to as homoerotic because there's a barracks with soldiers in it and they're taken from photos of the real thing. And I notice when, with heterosexual directors, when things are over the top, homoerotic, if that's not mentioned, I think it's a way of saying that I'm a director who's gay. How did you get the members of the Lost Boys to look and act like a gang? I don't think it takes long for teenage boys or teenage girls to bond. You know, it was very much the big hair rock band days. You know, Motley Crue and Twisted Sister and Kiss. And, you know, here are these beyond heterosexual guys with gorgeous long hair. And some of them were extremely beautiful. And, you know, making great music of the time. So that had an influence. But a lot of it, it was just like things that Susan Becker would come up with, like Alex Winter's jacket. There were all these places downtown L.A. that sold these cheap rugs that had, you know, some of them were religious, some of them, and she cut that up and made his jacket. And then for some reason, she bought all these rubber fish lures and sort of put them on like an epaulette. Why not? I mean, it was great. And then I can't think of Yolanda's last name who did hair, but, you know, they all look great. And Kiefer was, I think they were all 18, if I'm not mistaken. So it was Billy Worth. And I thought, well, I think girls are going to go berserk over Billy Worth and some boys. And then Alex Winter was at NYU Film School, and he was just his energy and his eyes and his being there. He was so present. And then Brooke. Brooke had originally been asked by Dick Donner to play David. 
And that was hard because I had to call Brooke and say, look, uh, I'm going to replace you with Kiefer Sutherland, but you're welcome to be one of the Lost Boys. And I would really like you to be that. And I didn't do it to sort of make up for that. I thought he'd be great. And he was. And it gave him the opportunity with Billy to be really crazy, you know, and he he was freer than if he played the part that Kiefer did. What's really interesting about Kiefer, he has less lines than anyone else, and you can't take your eyes off him once he's on screen. Where did the look of the Frog Brothers come from? Well, I, I based them on Rambo. I told them I wanted to be like little Rambos. In the original script, they were twin chubby Cub Scouts, and... It was very G-rated. The jokes were about, like peanut butter jokes and things like that. But I thought, you know, Rambo was so popular. And so I said, I want you to talk like Stallone and I want you to be little Rambos. And of course, for 13-year-old boys, I mean, they were obsessed with it. And then Corey always represented the new kid in town. And the clothes he wore were outrageous. But that's what a lot of kids would find at malls to be different then, because it was the 80s and there were big shoulders and crazy stuff and wild shirts and all of that. The Lost Boys is known for its soundtrack and your use of popular music uh, in a way and to an extent that hadn't been done before in a horror film. So much so that people called it the MTV vampire movie. There was something about Lost Boys from the very second that I said we were going to do it that not only attracted all these amazing artists and, and actors and talent, but there was just something where we started getting these demos of music that, you know, had the, the words Lost Boys in them, that, you know, people were trying to write a theme song for the movie. And maybe the music industry at that time, people were doing that all the time. I don't know. But I didn't have that for St. Elmo's Fire. And, you know, we were constantly getting these demo tapes and... None of them were, you know, suitable. They weren't right. And one of the PAs, Tom Lasali, who is, I'm still close to, he's, um, he and his children and his wife, but he was a uh, production assistant. And we were driving, or he was driving me to the beach one day. And I said, here's another demo, right? And I said, oh, God, okay, well, we have to listen to it. Right? And I pushed it in, and it was Cry Little Sister. And that was just before we started shooting. And that, that closed the deal. You know, Santa Cruz was part of it. The trip to Amsterdam was part of it. The idea about the cave was part of it. Getting Susan Becker and Bo, well, you know, everybody on board and getting Michael, that's all part of it. But that Cry Little Sister is the movie. It really is. And... We used it a lot. Tim Newman was very young, and Tim Newman is one of the most brilliant composers. And he did part of the score, but I always felt badly because sometimes I'd have to say to Tim, I'm going to go with Cry Little Sister here. Because he wanted to, you know, why wouldn't he want to orchestrate it? And I think he felt disrespected in a certain way. And I always felt sorry for that. But, you know, it's not a popularity contest. You have to do what's best for the film. Or what you think is best for the film. I don't know what happened with Lost Boys. All I know is the studio was on the fence still. And then we had our first research screening in Long Beach. And when we got there, there were like 750 people around this big theater. 
I don't know how they knew. I don't know why. Like, I mean, we don't always have that. And I don't know how many got in, but it was a big theater. And from the minute the movie started, and then there's a moment where they first, the boys first reveal themselves as vampires to Jason in the big tree. And they fly out in syncopation to walk this way by Run DMC <laughs> and Aerosmith. And they kill all the surf Nazis that there were a bunch of surfing guys, about nine of them in the row, a couple of rows ahead of me. And it was like a rock concert. They went, and one of those surfers ripped his seat open and took the stuffing out and like threw it up in the air. And it was crazy. And I had to actually add footage for some of the jokes because I didn't know they were going to go over so big. The scene where, um, so after that screening, there were many happy executives that were arrested. <laughs> and then my bosses, Bob Daly and Terry Samuel, said, you know, let's do another one because, you know, sometimes it's that audience that night, I think, but it was equally successful. So it was really exciting. But I don't know how to explain Lost Boys. And I mean, try to imagine uh, that was only my fourth film. You know, you never know if you're going to get another movie. I mean, after St. Thomas Fire, I got offered a lot of the sort of yuppie schmertz movies. And I didn't want to just do that kind of movie again because Less Than Zero was out there and Social Disease. And, you know, they were all variations on a theme. And then Lost Boys came along. Also, I really needed the paycheck. I really did. But it is why I did it. The final battle of the Lost Boys, it's got an interesting balance of tones, of horror and violence and humor. Um, how did you get that right? I don't know. <laughs> you don't know. You just have to follow your instincts. We made up a lot of it. I remember Jan Kemper was the great script supervisor. The other brilliant thing is Michael Chapman, who had done Taxi Driver and Raging Bull, decided to do our movie. And it was one of those magical things. And Bill Beasley was our, our first AD. And those are really the, the three people you're really making the, the movie with, because with the script survivor and the cinematographer and the first AD, you're planning the shots you're going to do. And they sometimes have a better idea. But we didn't know what the ending was going to be. So every day I would come to work and say, OK, so let's say Billy Worth flies out of the fireplace. Then what happens? We did this all through when we got to Warner Brothers after Santa Cruz. So we sort of then made it up after that. You know, like, well, we could do this, we could do that, we could do that. What the brilliant Steven Spielberg had done was not show the shark for most of the movie. So then I thought, well, you know, I didn't want to show the boys flying. First of all, it would be way too expensive. But I thought it would look weird, these guys flying in the air. And we didn't have the money to do that anyway. So you don't see them. You feel them. There's always, they're the camera when they whip the security guard out of the parking lot. And you don't see them. And so when Billy shoots out of the fireplace, then shit happens. But I was reading in, in this, you know, book about Lost Boys 
that the special effects guys said that I had never really done special effects. So I was very naive. So when I said, we're going to shoot Philly Worth out of the fireplace, they didn't know how to do it. And they were saying it was so good that Joel was uneducated about because we wanted to meet the challenge for him. So we made it happen. And I didn't know that, but it was great. I mean, how great that they did that and didn't tell me. So we had money for two blue screenshots. And one is when Billy Worth grabs Corey Haim and shoots up to the ceiling. That's one. And the other one is when Jason and Kiefer clash midair. That's the only two. And they were expensive. <laughs> but um, I don't know. I think having made so many movies and watching my friends and others' movies, you work your ass off, hopefully, and so does everybody else. And I think it's a lot like a virus. You're just at the right place with the right time with the right movie. Because there are wonderful movies that come out every year that no one sees. And then there are movies that maybe you and your friends or will go and see and go, that are huge hits and go, well, it's nice, but, you know, it's... And the, your friend sitting next to you or your loved one might say, this is the greatest movie I've ever seen. And you're going to go, okay. I mean, I think anyone who makes a movie should get an Academy Award. I do. Because it's an impossible feat. Because, like, I'm falling down. We had to, I wanted Barbara Hershey very badly to play Michael Douglas's wife. But she was under contract to do a film in England. So we had to shoot the end of the movie first, which is very risky because they have to start with their characters playing the end of the movie. Well, it's Michael Douglas, Robert Duvall, and Barbara Hershey. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they did, they, they brought it home. <laughs> Do genre films give outsiders a way to share their unique perspectives on the world in a way that's maybe more palatable to the mainstream? Well, I think all fantasy allows a certain vicarious thrill, you know, that you're part of a murder mystery, you're part of adultery, you're part of something that may be foreign to your own personal life, but you're wrapped up in it. And they did have a lot of gorgeous people in Hollywood in those days. And yeah, Postman always means twice as Lana Turner and John Garfield. Pretty good choices, I'd say, and a great story. But I think that in horror, a lot has been written. It's sort of like going on a scary roller coaster that you're experiencing near death, but it's not. But you have this <gasps> for a moment, you know, and I think horror, it sort of allows you to be scared to death without any threat at all. But you can sort of experience it. Because there are successful horror movies every year. I think two years ago, It Follows came out. It Follows is a masterpiece. I mean, the vision of the director is there in every single shot. And the fact that 
the parents are irrelevant. And it's also totally original horror movie. It's very hard to do. Very hard. So people still can make gems that come out of nowhere that are in the horror genre. But even if people don't see it that way, see, I think a lot of the films, hopefully we make them on several levels. And if people just want to see it as an entertainment, that's fine. If they want to read other things in it, as you brought up some stuff about my movies, that's fine. Maybe they got something out of it. And if they don't enjoy it, well, that's a reaction too. Well, you've made a number of films that were popular with audiences, but not always well-received by critics. How do you deal with that? You have never met a child that said, I want to grow up to be a critic. <laughs> I don't quite understand the credentials, although many have been very good to me. But there's a certain circle of New York critics that see themselves on such you know, they're on Mount Olympus. I don't know what they want out of a movie. I really don't. And I don't care. And, you know, there have been these catastrophic moments of humility in the human race when Copernicus taught human beings that the earth is not the center of the world. And then Darwin, that were descended from <laughs> apes, and Freud, that your mind is not really your own. And I think the humiliation of the New York critics realizing their importance is waning and waning and waning and waning. And that most people who go to movies would not read a New Yorker review, for instance, because they're audience films. And then there are a lot of movies like Brokeback Mountain that wouldn't have the popularity it had and the recognition if the critics didn't all love it across the board. There are those movies that are helped by reviews, but the audience is gonna to go to see what it wants to see. And they'll accept Rotten Tomatoes or the weather person saying on air, I saw that last night, I thought it was awful. That's a review. I, I've been lucky that so many millions of people have seen my films, whether they like them or not, is, is their, you know, their taste. But I don't like to read reviews, and I don't like to read other people's reviews because they make me angry because they can be so nasty. And I'm afraid I might enjoy a little schadenfreude there, you know, which I don't want to really fall into ever. Why do you think audiences accepted The Lost Boys? I don't know. I just think we were in the right place at the right time with the right movie. Can you imagine doing something many years ago that everybody's not quite sure about and there's a lot of unknowns and you're sort of trying to do something that's your own and then you're talking about it? I mean, we made it in 1986 and, you know, there's books about it. I mean, you're interviewing me about it. It has a place somewhere in the history of this, you know, vampire movies for sure. I heard there was talk of a sequel called The Lost Girls. Yes. Well, uh, first, uh, Dick Donner and his wife, Lauren Schuller, who coincidentally 
had produced Same and Must Fire. We're all very, it's a sort of obsessed little group. And she's gone on to do X-Men and many other great things. And Dick is legendary, I mean, in Hollywood. And they're both phenomenal human beings, you know, very human human beings. Can't say that for everybody. So I think there were a couple of scripts written that were sequels. I didn't believe in a sequel because the Lost Boys were dead. And also the 13-year-olds were getting older. It wouldn't have the same thing if they got older. To me, just to me. And then I said, well, what about a prequel? Because, you know, it could be... Max or the person who, you know, bit Max had come to the Barbary Coast on the West, you know, in the early days of the wild. And I think they did this. They tried to do a script of that. I wasn't involved in it. And then I said, why don't you do The Lost Girls? I said, how about, you know, Drew Barrymore? And I mentioned about three other young men. How about gorgeous teenage girls on motorcycles? that are vampires. I said, I would see that movie, wouldn't you? And I think there was a script started. I don't know if there was ever a script going around. Do you? I still think they could do it. It's a fun idea. And when you get lucky, it's like lightning struck and you don't know if it'll ever happen again. What are your favorite scenes from the film? Well, I love the opening across the water with Cry Little Sister. Oh, introducing Grandpa's house, I think, is really fun. Bo Welsh found the exterior in Santa Cruz. That was some kind of lodge. The interior was built on more, at Warner Brothers on a set, of course. And, well, of course, the maggots and the worms and the <laughs> scene and drinking Kiefer's blood, which goes into like nine different images superimposed on top of each other, which was very hard to do in those days. Uh, it wasn't like it is today, technology, but they did it. And the bridge scene is really fun. Jeff wrote that. And I think making Star a beautiful, desirable young girl, when you see her and, you know, it adds so much allure to, to the film which wouldn't have existed if it was all guys. And I don't know. I mean, I could talk about a lot of scenes. I think the dinner where they test Edward Herman, when they do all the vampire tests and he passes them, and it seems very embarrassing for Diane Weiss and Edward Herman, but they didn't read enough. They didn't know once you invite a vampire into your home, he has domain over it. They forgot that little rule. But we stuck to real vampire rules. I remember when we started to make up stuff, for vampire fans, we got to stick to the facts, Jack, and, you know, the basics. So, yeah, that was fun to do. And, you know, it's all about the cast. I mean, they made this. I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, how important is the quality of the acting when you're putting people in the midst of an outrageous premise? Diane Weist can say the most impossible line ever written, and you will go with it because her commitment as an actress is there. And I also wanted to be known, she laid on the floor at the end with the boys when all that black dust shot out at them. And we all had it in our pores. 
and in her mouths and eyes for a long time. I mean, that is a really good egg. And I will always be thankful to everybody in the cast. I mean, I have my career because of my cast. I'm not a genius and I'm not the greatest director in the world, far from it. But I will match my cast to anybody in the world because I think I've been lucky that so many people chose to work with me because they really make the films. Because I'm a very actor-actress-driven director. Oh, I want to tell you one more thing about the research screening that I I forgot to tell you. When Corey Haim shoots Billy Worth with the arrow and he goes into the stereo and then his body like flies apart all over the place, I don't think anybody anticipated what that reaction was going to be because the audience goes berserk, all right? And then Jason's passed out on the floor. Corey has a great line, which is death by stereo. But people reacted that I had to extend that line. I mean, I had to extend the weight. I'm cutting around because I didn't want the, I mean, that's the best line. And so it took a while till he says it because I didn't want them to lose that laugh. Thank God it worked. But those are things that came out of that first screening in Long Beach. Let's talk a little about one of your darkest films, Eight Millimeter. Was that a commentary on sexual violence and pornography in films? I think there were sometimes people can be a little uneducated about pornography. Pornography with a star like Jenna Jameson, who was very famous a few years ago and sort of took control of her own pornographic career and made a fortune. Beautiful blonde. And I'm trying to think of a famous gay porn star, maybe Ken Riker, that those are all legal pornography. I mean, you can buy them in a store. They're not a dirty little secret. And now you probably can watch them very easily. Um, eight, millimeters about, eight millimeters about illegal porn and snuff. Illegal porn. Violence is not allowed in legal pornography. There can't be a gun. There can't be a knife. They can't choke each other unless it's fun. You know, there is no bruising. There's no torture. There's no bondage. There's certainly no, God forbid, kitty porn. I mean, those are all underground illegal pornography. They're not illegal in Germany. Last time I was in Germany, uh, I mean, I saw no kitty porn. I never want to. But they have torture and bondage and, and, and those things. And that would be illegal in this country and, and should be. And snuff films are in a whole other category because like two of the films that Joaquin Phoenix and Nicolas Cage buy underground, it looks like they have raped this young woman and then murdered her on film. But she stars in both films. So they realize it's not real. And a lot of people don't want to believe these things exist. And I understand this. And people really bust your chops over snuff movies because people don't want to believe that. But we live in a world where people rape and kill their own children sometimes. So what can't human beings do? And it's much worse than anyone can possibly imagine because the late and great James Gallofini, who is brilliant in 8mm, 
he found a book called Gods of Death, which he brought in to me for research. And it's the gentleman who is an Israeli, I think he's Israeli uh, Mossad. Is that their, like, yeah, yeah, strong, like, the real guy, like, yeah, the tough cookies, yeah. yeah. He exposed the neo-Nazis in um, Germany, and Oliver Platt played him in an HBO movie. Okay, after he exposed the neo-Nazis, then he did Gods of Death. And he went around the world and he wanted to see if there are stuff movies and what it is. And I'm not going to go into it, but it's so much worse than you can possibly imagine. That's what a millimeter is about. It's about the world. It's a horror world, but it's a real world. Do you have any favorite recent horror films? Uh, world War Z. Because I think, first of all, the first 20 minutes are so breathtaking that you can't believe what you're watching. And secondly, they move like the speed of sound. And my problem was, you know, I grew up on um, the classic Night of the Living Dead, but they're lumbering. And I'm always thinking in the house, why don't you run away? Like, what are you doing in there? Like, you can run faster than the zombies. But that is famous. That is one of the most famous cult zombie movies. And good on them because they probably bred other ones. But World War Z, I loved. It's a great cast. But I thought the beginning and the scene in Israel with the wall coming down and that great... I've never seen that actress again, but she was amazing. You know, the one who played the soldier? Daniela Curtis. Brad Pitt and Brad Gray had a small screening at the Museum of Modern Art, and I was lucky enough that they invited me, and Brad Pitt introduced it. And it was kind of an illustrious crowd. And there were some people there that I didn't know, but they looked very rich. And, you know, the women were dressed beautifully. It was quite glamorous. And so when the Israeli woman soldier and Brad Pitt survived the plane crash, there was a woman in a pink designer dress with diamonds who said out loud, well, that could never happen if they survived. And I... I wanted to whip around and say to her, you've already accepted there are zombies. So go with this. <laughs> like, did you want Brad and that woman to die? Because <laughs> that would be the end of the movie then. And uh, I just thought that was funny. I'm not sure everybody there was the World War Z audience. You spoke earlier about your youthful addictions, but was there an upside to being a young and out gay man back uh, in the New York art world when it was at its height? Being in the fastest, fast world in Manhattan, gay and straight, was a great stepping stone for me because it linked me to so many people that had so much I wanted to learn, sophisticated people who were successful in the arts or journalism or decoration or clothes or, you know, things I wanted to know about. So I thought it was a big stepping stone for me, but I don't like to say that very often because I have so many friends and there's so many people in the world that suffer coming out because of religious backgrounds of family that will turn on them. It can be agony and horror. And I have one friend who grew up in Texas who was beaten and called terrible names 
and his father did not accept him. So I hesitate in ever talking about what a benefit it was to me. So I just want to emphasize that I woke up one morning and I was a drug addict and an alcoholic and really a sex addict in the sense that I think all of those were things I reached out to, like any addiction. But I did learn the worst and the best of things and would not change it. I don't recommend my life to anybody, <laughs> but, but it somehow worked out for me. So I'm very grateful, and I have to remember that every day. And I'm grateful for my mother for keeping us together under such difficult circumstances. But you know, you don't know it's difficult when you're a kid. You just don't. It's just the way it is. There's a wonderful scene. I think it was Richard Attenborough who directed that wonderful British film, Hope and Glory, about the Second World War. And there's this great shot of little kids playing in the rubble of the German bombing because they don't know it. That's their neighborhood. They're just out there playing in the rubble. And I thought that was such a brilliant image because you don't, that's, that's their hood. And I love the people in my neighborhood too. I think it was a real neighborhood and people helped each other. And so no regrets, except if I've hurt anybody. I'm sure I have. I try to make it up if I can find them. <laughs> And that was the late, great Joel Schumacher. Join us next time for another remarkable New Yorker, Mary Heron. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast hosted by Eli Roth and Kurt Sayanga, produced by Kurt Sayanga, engineered by Chris Heckman, with music by Maestro Joseph Bashara. For Oddity, Jessica Bastilos-Heckman and Lacey Oglevoy. For Shudder, Craig Engler, Nicholas Lazo, and Samuel Zimmerman. The interviews in this program were originally conducted for the AMC television series Eli Roth's History of Horror. Executive producers Eli Roth, Kurt Sayanga, Stephen Michaels, Allison Berkeley, Joseph Freed, Jody Flynn, and James McNabb. Senior producer Ben Raphael Schur. Thanks to Kelly Nash, Richard Drew, Chris Powers, and most valuable player Clara Zwerbel at AMC. This is Kurt Zanga for Eli Roth's History of Horror Uncut. <laughs> <laughs>